Well, last week we decided we were going to watch the movie Alien, and I was going to watch that for the first time and share my thoughts about it this week. So that's what we're going to do, and I made Greg sit through it with me, which would be, how many times have you seen that movie? Oh, easily in the 40s now. In the 40s? Oh, easily. Those <laughs> movies, like, I am obsessed with those movies. And you seem to enjoy yourself, too, so that was fine. Oh, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like, if you watch, for me, Alien or, like, Blade Runner, I can watch them 24-7, and I've yet to get bored. Okay, yeah, I can't do that with movies. I can do that with, like... YouTube videos, but not movies. I don't have the attention span to rewatch and rewatch. Like three is usually where I top out. Well, I mean, it's it's not even. Um, I, I guess for me, it's more like I like the world that they've kind of created, mm-hmm. and it's almost like in the background. Obviously, the story takes premise and like the plot, but like the alien universe and like the Blade Runner. Like, I want to know more about the world. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. One of the one of the best things about this world is how easily we are able to create other worlds. And if you were to come to this world from another world, if you were an alien, like the best thing that we have to offer is, hey, check out all these other worlds we've imagined. They're all better than this one. Oh, for sure. Every single one of them. <laughs> Video games, movies, even music. It's Yeah, I mean, everything is like an escape to get out of this shitty place. Yeah, which, of course, aliens would come and be like, oh, this is like the fantasy world that we dream about, but uh, you guys all hate it. That's that's. Uh, I'm sure there's a lesson in there, but even yeah, if we learned it, we wouldn't be able to embody yeah, it. And we'd that's forget what we anyway. Do with lessons. So uh, I had a little bit of a expectation set with Alien, and I had notes that I took all. I took like four or five pages of notes while watching it, and I brought the wrong binder, so I don't have those with me. But I'm gonna do my best to remember from memory what my observations were as I went through. Yeah, I mean, we could, I guess, start kind of like in the beginning. You you still remember like yeah. the plot, right? Well, we can kind of work our way through and yeah. If you so give the your first thoughts. thing that that I re- realized, you know, I'm trying to understand this movie in the context that it was originally released with like the big science fiction blockbusters and right the, the popcorn flicks of the time that are really focused on entertaining and enchanting and creating a really imaginative universe, like a Star Wars or a Star Trek, and uh, Alien. It just seems to take such great pains to to established from, you know, within like the first five minutes. I don't think there's, you know, a single word spoken for about five minutes. And it's just explained to you, this isn't that. Yeah, because you got to remember, this is 1979. So those other movies are gigantic. 2001 A Space Odyssey, Star Wars. Those are monumental in terms of uh, sci-fi. Yeah, so those movies are all telling, gosh, space is amazing. It's incredible. It's imaginative. And uh, from the second you see those two little, like, duck toys that are dipping into the cup of water and you realize that okay no in this movie space is boring oh yeah space is tedious space is just it's a way to make a buck it's everything's kind of messy and junky it's not really taken care of nothing's dusted there's dirt in all the corners it's uh, a cinema verite aspect of of this, so it's not it's science fiction, but it's trying not to be fantasy. Right, it's a level of realism, which is like the everyday person, because like their jobs, they're they're like miners essentially, and like, I mean, you you get that that definite feel of they live here for sure. Yeah, and I think it's great, you know, because in Star Wars and like two thousand one, everything's super clean and super high tech, and they're trying to show like, you know, how amazing the future is, and in this one, it's like, yeah, it's whatever. Yeah, it, it yeah. Dust collects here. Things break. Things don't work. It's uh, it's messy, grimy. It's the sort of you know, it's the thing that we can immediately latch onto the tedium of travel and of you know blue collar work and and everything that goes on. Uh, so that's the first thing that that the movie sets up. And in like the first few minutes, it sets up its color scheme, uh, which I yes. kind of latched onto. So it's uh, black, green, blue, and white. And that's sort of the hues that are all throughout the film. And, and the, yes. And I found a lot of like uh, yeah, significance to the color scheme. And I'll go into that in a little bit uh, and uh, what that means. I'm going to try to go over the top in my analysis of this movie because it's uh, it's it's fun. It's fun oh, to yeah, go over it's, the It's top. a cult classic and it's been analyzed a million times. So doing something a little bit more out there and fringy, I guess, with your analysis is going to be very interesting. Yeah, and you were trying to tell me, you know, at the beginning you were talking about it's sci-fi and it's horror, it's sci-fi horror, and 
after I watched it, I was trying to think, okay, would I think of this as a sci-fi movie with horror elements, or would I think of this as a horror movie with sci-fi elements? And I'm kind of leaning more towards the horror movie in a sci-fi setting. I would agree with that, yeah. And for me, the, the big reason for that is is just the... I know they give it a scientific coding, and of course, spoilers are going to abound. But yeah, the spoiler fact alert that the alien for this episode, goes by the way. from the size of like a small cat to the size of a large human being without consuming any calories and it's able to, you know, piece together like a central nervous system and a brain. That's what sort of makes it to me a, more of a horror movie than a science fiction movie because there is something that requires that much suspension of belief. Yeah, no, I, I could see that. I could see that. But you have to remember as well that the face hugger latched on and essentially used Kane's body, John Hurt in the movie, mm-hmm. um, you know, implanted the embryo and everything like that. So it gestated within him. So we don't know necessarily whether or not it, uh, you know, took a lot of his nutrients. The fact that he was starving mm-hmm. when he, when they're sitting at the table for that iconic scene kind of makes me think that it was, you know, like a parasite, obviously. Yeah. And of, and of course they're, they're doing what they can to add that element of realism to it. But I think the, for me, the idea of this being like a, a haunted house, almost a horror thing and haunted houses are always uh, analogous to, the experience of what it means to be a human because we are all haunted houses. We all have doors doors in our brain that we don't want to open and uh, secrets lurking in there that we don't quite want to face and we draw them out into the light and deal with them. So horror movies are almost an element of, they're a reflection of our growth and our maturity and uh, facing the dark things about our past and coming to grips with them. And I think that's a lot of what Alien is about in some sense that uh, sense that maturing is we are creating ourselves. We're creating uh, what it means to be, you know, a human. And, and at the same time, alien is also about the creation of this alien species. So it's that element of creativity and creation and self uh, identity and, and development that I found meaningful throughout the movie. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you can definitely view it from that aspect as well. Um, so, so getting into this mm-hmm. for, let's start like overall, okay. your overall thoughts of the movie, um, as a whole. And then I guess we'll start to break it down by ideas and segments. Okay. I yeah. think that'd be a good way to do it. So we watched this together. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time, very iconic classic film. Uh, you had never seen it. Yes. And at the very end of the movie, when the credits started to roll, you were clapping. Yes. Explain. Yes, I, I would rate this a, a full five stars event. Um, it was a film that just, it it accomplished everything that it set out to accomplish. And uh, there wasn't any aspect of it that didn't ring true, except maybe some of the cat stuff. But, I mean, that's like a Hitchcock element of having like some object that's not central to the characters that moves the plot along. Uh, it's a MacGuffin to use his terminology for it. So I understood why that was there. But it, uh, other than that, like it, everything about the movie set, the lack of music, the sound, uh, everything really, really worked. And in the end, it was a very moving human experience on a topic and a movie idea that can be very much just a soulless, you know, action or gross out movie. And I, we've certainly seen that done over and over again of, just taking, you know, ideas of aliens or alien invaders or parasites or space travel and, and removing anything that's human and soulful about it. And uh, this movie was definitely not that. It was very much a, a human movie. So, yeah. And the the big thing for me too, when it comes to to horror movies, what makes this stand out to me is not necessarily jump scares, although it had a couple moments where you're like, oh shit, and you hold on to your chair. Yeah. But I think the atmosphere itself and the suspense that Ridley Scott was able to produce in this film mm-hmm. really elevated it above anything that I have even seen to this day. Yeah. Um, so I mean you have the, you know, the body horror, I guess there's, you know, there's violence, there's gore, there's blood, but it's not over the top. They're not trying to gross you out, like you said. Yeah. It's just they're trying to creep you out in a way and trying to make you afraid of, I guess, the dark in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I liked about it, too, because there's a lot of scenes. Um, for instance, um, when Brett, the stoner mechanic. And, and you're going to have to help me out with all sure. of the names so, because they kind of all 
run together. Yeah, to yeah, me. no problem. So Brett is the you know the stoner mechanic, Hawaiian shirt, Hawaiian shirt, super relaxed. Um, you know when he he's the first one killed by the alien after after the uh, after the iconic birth. scene exactly. Um, so when he's looking for the cat, because uh, so, the, so they're looking for the alien, trying to find it with a motion tracker. Uh, they end up finding the cat, and they send him off to go grab the cat so that... You so know, that it doesn't set off the motion So it doesn't tracker. set it off again, yeah. So he goes off by himself. And this sequence, to me, um, is one of my favorites, because he's going through these dark rooms. Mm-hmm. You know, there's water dripping. You can barely see. There's chains hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, and he's, he's almost... There's almost like a childish aspect to him. It's almost like he doesn't... He's not quite aware of how much danger he's in. Exactly. And there's many instances, even just in this quick from him, from Ripley, uh, from Sigourney Weaver's character to his demise, where you're expecting it to pop out. You're expecting it to yeah. grab him, and it doesn't. Yeah. They, they hold that note just long enough to make you go, oh, my God, oh, my God, and then it ends. And he mm-hmm. moves to the next area, and you're just like, oh, you finally get a breath. And then it comes yeah. around. It does it two or three different times while he's looking for this cat before it finally appears behind him. And to me, that is what this movie's all about. And that's, and that's really what, what, what violence and what trauma are all about. It's not necessarily the act of violence, or it's not necessarily the act of the crime. It's all of the torment that you experience leading up to it and the fear and drenching your brain in those fear chemicals and living with that stress and that physical stress. And that's what causes the long-term damage. I mean, you know, imagine like you have a bully at school who beats you up. Those bruises heal, but the experience of waking up every morning, knowing that you're going to face that bully, that's what's going to, that's what you're going to be talking about in your therapist's couch when you're an adult. (laughs) Right. When you're in your thirties. Yeah. That, that constant, dread of something terrible is about to happen. And I think that constant dread is why we still talk about this movie to this day mm-hmm. is because of that. It's yeah, it, it doesn't relent. Right. You just, you know, bad things are going to happen because it's almost like good things couldn't happen. It's just, it's a boring, tedious spaceship. What are they going to do? Are they going to put on costumes and perform hair? Like yeah. it's just, it's not gonna... <laughs> these aren't, these aren't like trained soldiers. Sure. They have, you know, a science officer and a yeah. captain and I'm sure they all have, they're all good at their respective jobs, which could be anywhere from piloting, navigating, mechanic, but they're mm-hmm. not Mary Sue's in any sense of the word. So they're not like super hyper professionals where you're like, oh, how's their, how are they going to MacGyver their way out of this one? It's these, these seem like regular people. Average people. Exactly. And you get that, that fear because like you could put yourself in any one of their shoes and completely realize that you are fucked. Yeah, there's that. Well, the one thing that I did like about the cat is I think the cat and the humans are almost their their opposites in the situation. So we've got this alien who's and it's it's impossible to not talk about the movie without using the word predator, which is always going to bring up alien versus predator. But the alien is the perfect predator. Is that foreshadowing for a new film? Yes, we will do predator eventually. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, this creature that can become within, you know, 48 hours can become this ultimate killing machine that nothing, you know, at the top of the food chain. And we have the two creatures that are, are sort of opposites. We have the cat who still has all the instinct of a predator at the top of the food chain, but doesn't have any of the physical characteristics anymore and humans. And we still have all of our physical characteristics that help us get to the top of the food chain, but we don't have the instinct anymore. True. And so I, the cat does exactly what it's supposed to. It hides, it waits it out. It's just trying to not distract the alien, just trying to make it through. The cat knows exactly what to do, but it can't fight back. The humans can fight back, but they have no idea what to do. Right, and I, I see that, and that, that's an awesome contrast. And I also started to realize, too, right when you were explaining that, that using the cat in this situation, cats are dominant predators, especially in the plains. I mean, even house cats, like, they're yeah. amazing predators. Yeah, as long as anything is smaller yeah. than it, it's, and it's going this, to die. This thing dwarfs it in terms of, like, intelligence, hunting ability. And so you you kind of realize, too, it, it using the cat in a sense of, like, just being, like, an ordinary cat, like it's nothing, mm-hmm. elevates the level of danger that they're in with this thing because it i guess what i'm trying to say is the cat being a perfect killer looks like nothing compared to this thing so it used yeah. it almost as like a to the sense that we dwarfed t- 
tigers and lions and turn them into cats, this mm-hmm. alien is going to turn us into some exactly. as something as docile and domicile as that. Exactly. That was yeah. That's the point I was getting at. We have at. been catted by this thing. Yeah. Exactly. We're turned into just like a useless house pet. I wouldn't say useless. They're pretty useful, but just like a, <laughs> a like a simple house cat from you know a lion or a tiger to something tiny and domesticated and not dangerous at yeah, all. Powerless, a shell, yes. just a shadow of of what our potential used to be. Right. And I think they did that brilliantly. Like like England. Just like England. That's cats in England are very similar in a lot of ways. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay. Let's go back to, before we get too far ahead, because we already yes. jumped to Brett's death. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back to John Hurt. So, John Hurt. So, John Hurt. The beginning of the movie, they receive a dis- they're woken up out of hypersleep, right? Yes. And in order to, you know, kind of figure out what's going on, they think they're home and they're like waking up and they're having a good old time eating breakfast. They find out that they are nowhere near home. And they were woken up because of a distress beacon from an unknown planet. And John Hurt's character was called Kane. Yes, correct? John okay. Hurt was Kane. Um, okay. So uh, Tom Skerritt plays Captain Dallas. You know, makes the call to investigate this. They're contractually obligated to investigate mm-hmm. this SOS. Never call. trust a man named Dallas. It's absolutely right. Um, or anyone from Dallas. Or any anybody named after a city in the Big Twelve. Just, I would agree with that. Um, Get over here, Tulsa. So they ended up they ended up going down to this planet to investigate. They find a derelict crash spaceship. Looks like it's been there for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go inside. Yes. Now that's the first mistake. <laughs> but they go in. Um, John Hurt's character ends up falling, you know, down into like this little crevasse area. And because in their timeline, they don't have any movies, they don't know to not touch the eggs. Correct. So this is an alternate universe where movies don't exist, apparently. Yeah. So he obviously touches the egg. Don't touch Um, the egg. It opens up. The face hugger bursts out, jumps on his face, cut back to the ship. Mm -hmm. And in the next scene... um, Ripley's waiting for any type of an answer from them. They lost yes. communications. Uh, they show up back at the ship trying to bring him in. Now, Sigourney Weaver's character wants to follow protocol against contamination. Protocol. Yes. So she does not want to let them in because he could, Kane is infected. Uh, she's thinking about the crew as a whole, and they could all be in danger if she opens that door. Yes. Now, Ian Holmes' character completely disregards her and she's acting captain, by the way, since Dallas and Kane are off the ship. Yes. And he opens the door and lets them in. That bastard. Yes. Now, that's when things, there's a little bit of dissension. Um, obviously, Ripley doesn't take too kindly to being undermined on the ship. Um, there's some hostility between her and Captain Dallas as well, because mm-hmm. he was ordering her to open up the, the door. Um, and then, you know, they take Kane in and they try to get this thing off. Now, what they discover is obviously it's latched onto his face extremely tight. Um, He's barely alive, and they try to cut it off. And when they try to cut it, it bleeds acid blood, burns through two levels of the ship, Mm -hmm. and then they have to wait. There's nothing that they can do. Yeah. Now, what did you think of that opening to introduce this creature? Well, yeah, that's the second movement uh, of the Mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, the, the movie is... Perfectly paced. I kept right. uh, we were watching it and I kept pausing it at certain points, and every time I paused it, it was at a quarter. So the first time right. I paused it, I'm like, okay, let's see how far we got. And it was exactly one quarter of the way through, and that was where Kane touches the egg. Then I can't remember what the next part was, but it was exactly halfway through, mm-hmm. and that was the next time there was a big shift. And then three quarters of the way through, there was another big shift in the, mm-hmm. the narrative. And I paused, and yep, right there, there it was again. So to say the movie is perfectly paced is an understatement. Everything takes place exactly where it should on those four quarters. There's equal amount of time dedicated to every movement of the story. Now, I think right now would be a good time to point out that we did not watch Ridley Scott's director's cut. We watched the original theatrical release of how it would have been viewed in theaters in 1979. Yes. So even then, without the director's cut, it was brilliantly paced. Yeah. Well, because the editor is an artist as well. And uh, directors and editors, uh, you know, there's a, that's a tension. But uh, I think the editor was very artistic in their selection of where to put the cuts and things. Exactly. I think they did a phenomenal job. Um, now, after, at this point, yes. um, you know, they argue back and forth a little bit. 
you kind of get the idea that Ripley's pissed off at everybody for making a stupid decision. She's starting to not trust Ian Holmes' character, Ash, who is yes. the chief science officer who opened the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see her suspicions. Um, and, you know, you go through a few other moments of them just kind of killing time and waiting to receive a call that they should come take a look at Kane. That mm-hmm. his condition has changed. Drastically. Drastically changed. And at this point, he is awake. Mm-hmm. Has no memory of what happened. The thing is off of his face. Uh, they end up finding it dead in the room. And he's just hungry. And he is starving. So this is when we get to the most iconic point in the film. Even people who've never seen this movie know of this scene. Yeah. Um, they are all... And, I, and I'd seen this scene before. Right. I'm sure you have in clips or you've heard about it. I mean, most people I, w- I would think have at this point. Um, but if you haven't, they're all sitting around the table... Um, they're all talking with Kane about how like, oh, hey, we're glad you're okay. Everything's, you know, fantastic. And he's just scarfing down food because he is starving. Uh, he begins to convulse. Mm-hmm. And at this point, everyone looks a little bit worried. The convulsions get worse. He's coughing. He can't breathe. He, he flips over yeah, onto they, the table. They, they start treating him as though he was having a seizure. Yes, basically like a seizure. Um, so, you know, they all run over to see what they can do. They try to put, you know, like a fork in his mouth because they assume it's a seizure. That's mm-hmm. what it appears to be. Um, and at this point you hear a crackling and you see his chest, you see a little pool of blood Which was start foreshadowed to form. from when they went on the alien ship before and they see a dead alien with it, something burst out of its chest. The and, space jockey. And almost perfectly when you watch that scene, there's, there's something, I don't know why, how they did it, probably just like, uh, the way it was lit. You see almost as though there's a light in the dead alien's eyes, as though it's looking directly at the characters, seeing if they're going to make the same mistake that he made. Yes, it's and, just a uh, quick that was little just bit a, of editing, and I like little, that. Great little scene right there, just where oh, we're being watched by people who have made the same mistakes, and they're going yes. to see if these people are going to going to triumph where they failed. Exactly, and so I mean, he's convulsing on the table. You see the pool of blood start to form on his chest. And that's when it happens. Never a good sign. The alien bursts from his chest, spewing blood all over the actors and the other characters, which, by the way, was, if I'm not mistaken, unbeknownst to them how intense it was going to be. Yeah. So I think they were aware that this was going to happen. What, what I heard I, was they tried it like two or three I think takes so. before, but they didn't do it quite as intensely. Correct. So they overdid this one. And when the blood spurted out of his chest all over the other characters, their reactions were genuinely freaked. Like, they were freaked out. And it was a genuine reaction to this. Mm -hmm. So it's where you can really see, like, the fear because it looked really realistic. Yeah. The thing bursts out of his chest, looks around the room, and runs Runs. off. Just (laughs) takes off and is gone. Everybody is left in awe. What were your thoughts on that iconic scene? Um, Well, because that was the one that I knew was... Going to come, so everything you know had kind of been leading up to it. Uh, I like the the element of the actors. You know, the, the typical response there would be you'd you'd be afraid, but then you'd sort of like immediately start laughing or joking about it. But they were able to kind of follow through with the emotion. They they understood what was going on in you know in the meta game of what the director is doing with the actors, and they were able to keep going through with it. Uh, and then the fact that the alien runs away is. Really, really, you know, freakish to me because this is a birth scene and humans are born prematurely and completely helplessly mm-hmm. without the ability to move, without the ability to think. And we're, you know, craving physical attention, physical connection. And the first thing that this thing does is it gets away from people. So it recognizes that it's in danger this, and it leaves. Or there's just this immediate antisocial aspect to it. So you think it's just antisocial and it was just, it's a misunderstood creature? No, no, <laughs> no. It's antisocial in like the psychopathic sense that it hates people. It, it's a, moving away from them. It sees other people as com- competition, predators, as potential prey. It just, it's not looking for anybody to protect that it. it's already completely independent from the moment of its birth on its own, independent. See you guys later. <laughs> yeah, so it has to get away in order to grow, yeah. essentially. So it needs to find a safe, dark place where it can grow yeah. and shed its skin or whatever it was. And yeah, over and over and over again right. until it becomes the size of you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, an eight-foot-tall killing machine. Yeah, which is the part that I found a little bit, you know, 
that's the part that made it seem more like a horror movie to me because it's like a, a, a small problem that grows into a huge problem. It's almost like a nightmarish aspect of it. Something that in the timeline of the story doesn't make sense, but in the timeline of the narrative makes perfect sense. Right. And it, you can attribute all of this chaos and everything that happens in the movie back to that one scene of Ash opening the door. So one mistake by one character creates yes. a snowball effect which dooms everybody. And now that is the that's the moment that I fixated on. Really? Yeah, is uh and because the the sequel prequel Prometheus. Mm-hmm. So to me this movie is a uh it's it's mythological in the sense of so many other ancient stories in that it's about like you go to the Prometheus myth, you go to the Garden of Eden myths, Tower of Babel myths, pretty much anything from the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, the, the, there's a series of myths that are cataloged there that all have the same theme, and it's the same theme that you find throughout a lot of ancient uh, creation narratives, and it's talking about the creation of humanity, not necessarily the creation of matter and energy, but the creation of what it means to be a person, what it means to have this odd relationship with the earth and everything around us that other animals don't seem to have. And it's about transgressing the proper boundaries. So what you have in Prometheus is you have the boundaries between the the gods and the humans, and Prometheus transgresses that boundary by bringing fire from the gods and giving it to the humans. And then he's judged for that. In the Garden of Eden, you have the boundaries between humans and God as well, and they transgress that boundary, eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then they're they're smacked down. Uh, Similar, if you go into um, Tower of Babel in the Bible, they're transgressing the physical boundaries between the physical realm and the spiritual one by trying to build a tower into heaven, and they're scattered about the earth for that. Um, The way that the Bible changes the Gilgamesh flood myth is that it makes it into the same story. It's the story is instead of uh, in Gilgamesh, there's just a, a God who hates humans and tries to kill them all. In the Bible, the the line of the the logic of the story is that human beings and uh, angelic beings have been procreating and that's what the flood is sent to punish. So there's another transgression of a spiritual boundary between human and angel. So that's the myth that we're seeing in this is that there's two realms of existing and you're supposed to stay in your realm and you're not supposed to move over into that other realm. You're not allowed to cross over that boundary. And Cain had already crossed that boundary by going down and touching the egg. So he'd already was experiencing the judgment from that. But then they furthermore crossed the transgress the boundary a second time by bringing him onto the ship. And then they all pay the penalty for that. So the other, you know, the psychological element of this myth of crossing spiritual boundaries and crossing the proper sphere of humans and where, you know, and reaching for more than we're supposed to have is that it's a coming of age narrative. This is how children become adults. Children transgress into the territory of adults and they begin conflicting with adults. They begin rebelling and they begin behaving in ways that are independent and, the adults have to discipline them, but secretly the adults want that to happen because that's how you become an adult. So to me, that's what this movie is about. It's about, you know, what happens when we cross boundaries that shouldn't cross. And then psychologically, that's about how we become independent adults. Right. Yes. So I'm taking this to an extreme level. I noticed. (laughs) I was listening. Mm -hmm. I was listening and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I just did not expect that. Well yeah. done. Well played. <laughs> That's why I took five pages of notes. Well played. So going back to that, what is the ship called? The ship is called the Nostromo. What do they call the ship? Mother. Well, Mother is the AI system within the ship. Okay, so Mother yes. is the AI system within the ship. Correct. And who is Mother coordinating with? Mother is coordinating with the company, which is Wayland yutani mm-hmm. um, And also you find out a little bit later in this scene, uh, not in this scene directly, but in the, I would say the the third quarter mm-hmm. of this of this movie, um, that it's been coordinating with Ash. Yes, the chief science officer who opened the door. Now, in the very very first scene, they're all sitting around the table. Mm-hmm. What color is Ash wearing? Ash is wearing blue. Ash is wearing blue. Is anybody else wearing blue? No, they are not. What are they wearing? Uh, they're wearing white. 
or or gray. I don't green, remember. Green, green, ah, green the and green, white. the green Col- jumpsuits. The colors of youth and innocence. Oh. And Ash is wearing blue. He's separate from them. He's older, visibly older. He's only I think two years older than Dallas. In you know, in real life, in real but life, he, yeah. Than he Tom's visibly yeah. looks older. So we have this mother figure. We have this father figure. Ah. And then all the rest of the crew are sort of to me embodying aspects of children who are. <clears throat> coming into their own and learning how to deal with life when they can no longer rely on their mother and father. True. That does make sense. Um, and when you think about it too, mother and father and this being mother, the AI system and Ash, uh, possess knowledge that nobody else does, which yes. elevates them above and the rest not, of the crew. And they're not sharing it with other they people. They are most definitely not sharing it with anybody else. Yeah. Uh, also, the, the color of mother is uh, gold. So every time we see them interacting with the AI system, the, there's always golden lights Correct. that are going on. So we have gold and blue, and these are sort of the parental colors. We have green and white. These are the colors of children. And then we have the, the black of the alien and of the space and of the shadow. And that's... Mm-hmm. You know, the the danger and the mystery, the conflict that they have to overcome. That's a very good point. I never really thought about the color scheme having this much importance. I kind of noticed it helped with the theme, but I really like that analysis. Yeah. That's really good. So now as we go through it, uh, here's how I viewed the characters. Yes. Uh, Ripley is, you know, of course, she's the eventual victor, and she's the one who sort of embodies the change from childishness to adulthood. <laughs> the other characters sort of are stuck in very childish ways of behaving. So we have... Um, yes. So the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Kane, the very first time we see Kane, he's awakening out of this egg. It's almost like he's being born. He's got like a childish innocence to him. He's curious, he's naive, mm-hmm. and he gets into trouble, be- you know, not because he's doing anything wrong, but because he slips and falls. <laughs> so there's, you know, almost a very infantile, naive element to Kane. The way that he, you know... The first scene, he wakes up, and it's like three or four different camera shots of him just like stretching his neck out and mm-hmm. stretching almost like a baby deer that's learning how to stand. Right, because he does have memory loss. He's groggy. He doesn't really know where he is or what's going on, so he's very confused. Yep, so yeah. we see him in sort of like this infantile uh, element. So I view sort of like all of the, mm-hmm. the, the crew as one human being, one common personality, and this person has to get rid of these childish aspects in order to defeat the evil that it's faced with, in order to triumph and, and, and overcome survive. and achieve. Yeah, and survive. Yes. So the first thing that has to go is just that infantileness. So Cain, mm-hmm. first dead. Second right. character who dies is... Brett. Is which? Is Brett. Brett. Yes. And now he's just childish. He's just looking for fun. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really, you know, get into any of the discussions with other people. He's just sort of by himself. He's not really, really understanding what's going on. He's almost like a, a toddler or a young child. He's just, he's not quite with it. Yeah, he's not really comprehending the gravity of the situation. You yeah. can kind of see that in the way he handles things. Yeah, Correct. so there's almost that playfulness, that lack of seriousness, mm-hmm. and so that's another element of childhood that we have to deal with, we have to overcome in order to deal with uh, the problems at hand. So he's the next one to go. Uh, next person to go is Dallas, I Correct. believe. Correct, yes. So they make the plan once Brett dies. Uh, they go back and everybody groups together. Mm-hmm. Um, they begin discussing what happened to Brett, how big the thing is. Um, they're trying to think of a plan and a strategy to eliminate this thing, to find and eliminate it. Uh, their plan is to essentially use fire. So like they have these incinerator units, which are like mini flamethrowers. Which uh, I'm not too sure why they're on the ship, but I mean, I'm sure there's a reason for it. I never really put too much thought into it. Um, They're going to lure it into the airlock and blow it out into space. Mm -hmm. Now, they realize that it's using the air ducts to travel around the ship. So Dallas volunteers as captain to go in with one of the trackers um, and an incinerator unit and kind of like force it into a corner and push it back into the airlock. So Mm -hmm. that's the scene that we're in now when it comes to the demise of Dallas. And now when I look at Dallas, I see somebody who has a complete crisis of authority. He's entirely reliant on mother and Ash to make his decisions for him. True. Cause he just with his complete disregard of the containment protocols exactly. and the quarantine ordering Ripley to open the door, knowing full well what that would entail. Yeah. So it takes the third in command since Kane was second, he's incapacitated yep. to make the logical decision. So he, you can tell is not in the right state of mind or necessarily doesn't even seem to be fit to be captain at this point. Yeah. He's, he's like a child who does, who knows that mom is disagreeing with dad and he can't, 
quite figure out that this means that he has to develop his own sense of authority and his own wisdom and his own ability to say, when the two people that used to make decisions for me are in disagreement, this means that now I have to take up that mantle and I have to start making decisions for myself. And I, you know, even if it means disappointing one person or angering another person. So to me, Dallas represents the element of childhood where we're still very reliant on our parents for decision making and the inability to, to hold on to your own authority the way Ripley does in that protocol scene where she's saying, stay outside of the ship. She's doing the absolute right thing. But if you were a 10 year old watching this movie, you think Ripley's doing absolutely the wrong thing the heartless right. thing you think she's she's a bad person because she doesn't want to help this guy yeah and and you don't realize no she's following what the rules are even though you know all of the other authorities and other figures in your life are telling her not to she's has the maturity and the self-authority to be able to do the right thing exactly even so, if that means you know contention amongst other crew members which you can see later when they're waiting for kane to wake up you can see lambert um kind of argue with her and in the in the director's cut you actually see her call her a bitch and all this stupid stuff she you know gets very upset and angry yeah so you can see that even though she knew that everybody was going to be upset she had to make the right call for the betterment of the entire crew yeah and and, and so now we have uh after Dallas dies well let's we- let's explain how Dallas dies yes so he's he volunteers to go into the air vent um they're closing off the vents behind him as he moves through these vents. Obviously they're, they're not too small where he can't fit, but they're not big enough for him to really even stand up or squat. So he's kind of crawling he completely through immobilized. Almost. Yeah. So yeah. he's, you know, very, he's at a very disadvantaged position. Um, but this thing obviously starts to kind of follow him and, uh, they pick him up on the tracker that it's, they're trying to like track this thing down while he moves through and it starts to approach him. They can see it on the tracker. He doesn't know where it is. He can't see it. He starts to panic. He climbs, you know, down a ladder. He's kind of hiding and he he just turns around real quick and there it is. It's already on top of him. Mm-hmm. And that's the last you see of Dallas. And everybody is able to watch this as it's happening. Basically, they, they're listening in and they're watching through, I believe, through the cameras. I Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure if they're even visually able to see him. Yeah, they just but see they blips know on the screen. Yeah, they know what happens to him and they know he's gone. Um, so, you know, you find out in a little bit of exposition in the next scene that they found the tracker and the flame unit, but they didn't find anything of Dallas. Mm-hmm. So Dallas is the third character to go. Yep. And now we have the reveal, if I'm correct. Correct. Yeah, you actually run into um, the next section as well, since Ripley is now acting captain with Captain Dallas gone. She's already suspicious of Ash um, and Mm -hmm. his motivations, so she goes in to... And his reactions. He's not reacting the way that a person should react to this. Correct. He also seems to be envious of the creature calling it a perfect organism. Mm -hmm. He's fascinated by it. Um, He seems to view it with, you know, admiration more than than fear. Um, So you kind of get the idea that he's, something's up with him, obviously. They hint at it through the movie. Uh, With Ripley going into Mother's Chambers and, you know, overriding the console and figuring out, like, what are we supposed to do? Now she attains the knowledge that, Correct. The parent figures had that that mother and Ash had. Now she has that knowledge. And now she's got to make the decisions and has to, you know, break free from that. Correct. So it was a direct order from the company to investigate this. Um, and they had a feeling there was going to be a, a specimen of some kind and to retrieve it at all costs and bring it back to the company. Uh, crew expendable. Yep. Yes. So you find this out. So she realizes that they don't have any support from the company's AI system on the ship from Mother, and then you get the reveal that Ash is, in fact, an android. An android who runs on milk. Yes, he runs on android juice. Um, He attempts to actually kill Ripley for finding this knowledge. Very Freudian way. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's a fantastic scene. That was a really good scene. And you didn't... Did you see it coming, that he was an android? Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely, because I was... Phenomenal. I was was beginning to get my, my... charting out the idea of this being a, a coming of age narrative about transgressing boundaries and Ash's character just didn't make sense. He mm-hmm. wasn't analogous to this change in the way that the other characters were. And then all of a sudden it's this very violent, nearly sexual attempt at murdering Ripley, the one Correct. who actually has some independence and the one Ripley who understands it's either me or them. Correct. If I and like the like the child realizes if I stay a child and I stay with my parents, I'm going to be destroyed. 
I'm never going to become the adult that I need to be. So I need to destroy them first. And so to some extent, that's what becoming an adult is. It's confronting your parents, triumphing over them. And now in humanity, it's, it's almost like a game. Your parents push back because they know that you need to push back against them. And, and, uh, you know, they sort of play along in a way to make it, uh, to make it easy, well, if they're good parents, to make it easy for you to have your own wins and to come into your own and, and have a sense of your own independence and authority. But uh, in this movie, she just has to she has to kill Ash and then she has to kill the ship. Yeah, it's a physical, you know, triumph, I guess yeah. you could say. Um, so yeah, Ash attempts to kill her. He throws her across the room a couple times. He starts malfunctioning a little bit. You start to realize this. Uh, luckily for her, um, two of the other characters. Um, Lambert and Parker both show up in time to rescue her. And Parker hits it over the head, uh, hits Ash with a fire extinguisher, mm-hmm. revealing that when his head kind of pops really off gross. a little I bit. Was like, I thought he was like completely like, I thought his innards had been hollowed out by the alien and the alien was like possessing him, but then they said it was Right, a that was my first thought too when I initially watched this. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you start to realize that it's like a bio biotic android so there's a lot of um yeah well almost living tissue it seems here's like it, the interesting thing about this is that is it would be easier to to think that ash might be a robot if you're watching this in 1979 right because now i you know we look at the ship and we see the stuff that was supposedly high tech but we would look at that and go oh gosh this is like stone age digital technology right. CTV so lights we look at that and we're like LED. oh these guys are nowhere close to having ai technology because we sort of know what ai technology looks like but they didn't know what it would look like back then so right <laughs> to us it's like wait how could be he be ai they don't have any of like they're not even close to ai <laughs> Right, at the time, yeah. So it's a complete, you know, fictional imagining of what AI would be like. It's an interesting way that watching the movie, the experience of it changes as technology progresses, and I think makes it more interesting and more more surprising. Yeah, it's a nice little, like, throwback, you know, to the mindset that they were in in 1979 when they made this. Yeah. Yeah, so to see, you know, obviously Ash gets destroyed. Um, they end up taking his head and plugging it back <laughs> that in. That was such a fantastic scene. Oh, it was scene. so good. You that, have... that is one of the most imaginative, best scenes where you've got like this obvious, like, you know, fake, fake head. head. Yeah. And then like they plug it in. They, they do like a Alfred Hitchcock and rope cut behind somebody's back as they pass in front of him. And it's just Ian Holm again. <laughs> yeah. It's Ian Holm sticking his head through the table <laughs> and talking. covered in Android goop. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Ripley asks him some questions. Uh, basically says, you know, the same thing, confirms what she thought all along, that, you know, they were expendable and that the alien was uh, supposed to be brought back on orders of the company. And then he says one of the most iconic lines, I Mm -hmm. think, in the entire movie, which is, you know, when he explains to Ripley that he can't... He's like, I don't want to lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. Yeah. And that's just like chills. I yeah. thought it was fantastically delivered. It Ian Holm is obviously a phenomenal actor. I love him to death. And it just like to to start off the final act of the movie with that mm-hmm. is oh, you know you're in for a ride. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you think of of more of like that reveal of of well, Ash? Well, it completely uh caught me by surprise and so it added so much to the movie because it it really made it brought everything about the setting and it made the, you know, the setting of here's these people on this journey. That's no longer a random setting. That's no longer, you know, the tasks they have, the equipment that they have on the ship is no longer random. It's all there for a purpose. So it, uh, it brought every element of the narrative, you know, the loose ends that hadn't been tied off. And instead of making them incidental, it made everything key. So it, it brought everything about the movie into such a sharp, tight focus. And, uh, like you said, it, that's the uh, the beginning point to the final act of the movie, and uh, we've got you know it really is at this point us against the alien, us against the world. We've just got to somehow survive. There's no every, now all of the crew members remaining are on the same page. They've got the same plan. They know exactly what they're going to do. There's no more conflict. Uh, it's almost like here's the stage of adolescence. We know what we have to do. Let's just see if we can do it. Right, so they have you know um, a goal, and they know they have to achieve it. They're just not entirely sure how. One thing I wanted to point out, though, as well, mm-hmm. is something that I caught rewatching this, um, which I'm sure most people did. For some reason, I never noticed it. 
But when Dallas and the crew are talking about Ash, when Ripley is asking about him, um, you find out that Dallas says the day that they took off for their mission, he was assigned. So yeah. they replaced the previous science officer with Ash, the android, uh, knowing that obviously lets lead you to believe they know full well that there is this distress beacon and they were going to arrive there all along. It mm-hmm. wasn't just chance. It also shows you sort of the feebleness of Dallas's character. Here's a person that he's giving like so much trust in, but he doesn't know him. Doesn't, doesn't know him at he all. Doesn't know Ash at all, but he's make willing to make have him make such, you know, huge decisions over the life and safety of his crew. Right. Sort of this how deeply unfit Dallas was to face crises. Exactly. And especially when you have two other people in command, which would be second in command would be Kane, third is Ripley, um, to leave these decisions up to the chief science officer. Granted, I understand science. Yeah. I get that. You know, they, <laughs> Dallas probably doesn't know a lot about what's going on. This guy's a doctor for the most part, they mm-hmm. assume. Um, but yeah, to, to leave all these, these major decisions up to yeah. him is Captain just... Kirk would never have done that. No. God, no. <laughs> oh, no way in hell. But yeah, it, it completely you know, highlights the fact that Dallas was not fit to be captain, didn't even seem to care. He mentions a few times that, hey, it's just in the contract, we got to do it. He just, he doesn't care. He's already checked out. Even mm-hmm. during these times of crisis, when they come back with Kane with the uh, the face hugger attached yeah, to him, he, he really doesn't seem he's, to. He's care. looking for somebody to take the responsibility exactly from right. Him so he that does he doesn't not have want to it. make the decisions. Yes. Very childish. Yeah. So I just wanted to touch on that before we moved into the final act of the film, which now leaves us with Ripley, Lambert, and Parker. Now, this was the part. We talked about this right yes. afterwards, that until this point, the alien has been picking off the stragglers. Correct. Like one a predator, by one when they're alone. You know, finding the antelope that's a little bit farther away from the clump of antelopes and just chasing that one down. Right. Now we have an, uh, a break from the narrative. So we have this parallel event. The cat has gotten lost again, and Ripley goes after the cat. Alone. Similar to what happened to Correct. Brett. Alone. Was it Brett? It was Brett, okay. yes. So Similar she follows in the Brett. same path as Brett. So we feel like we know what's going to happen. The person who's alone, who's going after the cat, is going to run into the alien. And now here, this is to me the part that was interesting. At this point in the movie, I began to realize in a normal movie, Ripley is an unnecessary character. Because in a normal movie, the final two survivors are going to be a man and a woman. And they're going to do like... a. Prince and princess struggle against good and evil, fall in love, triumph, save each other, and escape. So we have those characters, but you know, and they're almost setting up that that really familiar storyline of these two people are going to escape and they're going to you know. Now, fall now in since love we're and triumph. since we're talking about that, let's talk about Parker and Lambert. Yes, Parker in the beginning of the film, uh, also one of the mechanics that worked with Brett down below, um, only seemed to care about his share. He his was paycheck. his paycheck. He was upset. He wasn't making as much as everybody. Um, he wanted to make sure he got his fair share of mm. whatever they discovered with this alien ship. Yep. He's always bristling against yep. the authority. Always. He always seems to have some kind of an issue. Um, kind of comic relief at times, I would say. But then but you he have ha- he has a he survives for a reason. He's right. He's a decent decision maker and he's got a good sense of what things are dangerous and what and not self-preservation yeah. seems to be most prevalent in Parker out of all the characters other than like Ripley for say yeah but Lambert on the other hand seems to be almost hysterical most of the time she's emotionally unhinged doesn't seem to have it together yeah also you know in the scenes uh, again like like Parker a little bit resentful of authority doesn't Correct. like being told what to do and you find out more in the director's cut because you see a confrontation between her and Ripley over uh, opening over not wanting to open the door. Okay. So she is by far on the side of Captain Dallas and Ash. We got to save the... Yeah, we got to open the door and save Kane. Um, so she's very resentful and opposes Ripley multiple times throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you see this kind of anti-authority almost in terms of she just wants to get the fuck out of there. She yeah, even suggests just taking a chance it. on the shuttle. Yeah, that's that's what I, I get when I look at Parker and Lambert. Mm-hmm. I look at Parker and Lambert and I see here's the fight and flight. Exactly reactions. right. Yes. That no, that's a very good point because yeah, Parker wants to destroy this thing. He's got his flamethrower, he's ready to go, he wants to kill this fucking alien. And then you get Parker who just wants to jump on the shuttle and take her chances in deep space that hopefully she'll get picked up. So you have the fight or flight response together as these characters. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, 
um, throughout the movie, you've seen individuals being picked off one at a time. Um, and now you're in a situation where Parker and Lambert are going to collect, I guess, fuel and oxygen tanks, I think is what it is, what they're going yeah, for. Yeah, they're, they're supplying... It's grabbing the, supplies together. The shuttle to try to give themselves as long to, as possible. Yes, to, to give them the to best be, chance of to be survival. Discovered. And Ripley was going to set the self-destruct sequence on the ship to yeah. blow it up. Well, here's the, the ele- yes. perfect element of hopelessness that the movie gets you that we know it takes them 10 months to get back. And right. 10 months... On a ship is hard to imagine, but on a shuttle, it's even harder to even imagine. Even harder, so yes. They set up, they set up the impossibility of the of what the task ahead without hitting us over the head with a sledgehammer. Right. Yeah. So you get this feeling of of you know dread. Even if they were to succeed, it's not necessarily a success. Yeah. It's just, just the best case out of two horrible scenarios. Yeah. Now they've they've done the thing that you know if had Dallas still been alive, he would never have been able to make that choice of stay on the ship or leave the ship. It, Correct. He, he would have been too indecisive. But they all know they've all made it through. Yep. They've got to to get out. Yeah. They're all in agreement that they need to get the hell off the ship, and blowing it up is the perfect way of destroying this creature. Mm-hmm. So now you're in the this, this situation in the scenes where Ripley's going for the cat mm-hmm. alone in the dark, you know, while she is getting catted hallways, by aliens while she's obviously getting catted. Um, and now you have this feeling that Parker and Lambert are in a much safer position than Ripley yeah. because they are together because and they they're are together in a group. And because they, you know, Parker has, you know, he's the biggest person remaining. He's Correct. the strongest. He's got that, he's got that brash Han Solo attitude. Correct. This is, this is a guy that we can recognize. Yeah, this guy's a hero. Yeah, this guy, this guy can do what needs to be done to protect himself and those around him. You kind of get that feeling. You know, and we're, we're, you know, we're seeing uh, Lambert, you know, in the stereotypical screaming hysterical woman who can't run away from a monster without falling down. Sort right. Of. We're used to the hero being able to protect her and, you know, her weakness only makes him stronger almost. Correct. So you see this and your your natural assumption is, okay, well, they're going to be okay. So what's going to happen with Ripley? But she seems like the main character. So how is she going to get out of this upcoming situation she's going to get into? Mm -hmm. And again, you get that same kind of feeling as you did with Brett where they hint at something's going to happen yeah. and they drag these you shots You recognize on, this. And you start to feel like, oh my God, here we go, here we go, here we go. And you're just waiting for it, waiting for it. And they just hold that note with Ripley while she's looking for this cat. And eventually she finds the cat. Yep. And puts the cat in a little carrying case and begins going back. And you're like, oh, that was rather uneventful. Yeah. Very suspenseful, but also very uneventful. Yep. And then you get the cut to Parker and Lambert. Yep. In this scene, they are throwing these cans. And now we have a much better yes. view of the alien. Up Correct. Until now, it's still been very, very small flashes. Correct. Very know. quick little things. You've seen its face and like its yeah, hand. We don't You've seen have its a tail. Good, we don't have a good recognition. We can't. We couldn't pick it out of a lineup of right. Which they did a great aliens. job of give, showing you just enough of this thing. Yeah. To make you like, oh, that's creepy looking. Yeah, the Jaws element. Exactly. You don't see the entire thing until towards the end of the movie. And now you're at a scene where Parker and Lambert are both collecting these these canisters. Um, and then you see a shadow behind Lambert. Mm-hmm. And you see it move, and it kind of covers the light, which was very well done. It was a very good yeah. idea to do that, to kind of show like a silhouette moving behind her. And as she turns slowly, she sees it. And you see it stand up behind her yep, and, and tower over her. And the camera angle there puts you in the position of Parker, who, you know, Correct. We're, looking looking at this, we're looking at him as he's the person who can save us. But the alien is already past him. It's already uh, attacking Lambert. He can't get in between the alien and Lambert. So Correct. So there's it's, that, that helpless aspect that we already It is directly between them. But he does exactly what you would expect a hero-type character to do. So he rushes to try and protect Lambert. Yes. And jumps at this thing. And, and before, we don't see any of this. Yeah. We hear all this. You hear it. You catch a glimpse of it, though, yeah. of him moving, and you see the alien turn, completely predicting his movements, knock him down to the ground, pick him up, essentially. He gets up, pins him against the wall, and uses its... Quadruple mouth. Quadruple mouth to puncture a hole through his chest, essentially ending Parker. Yeah. So Parker is dead at this point. Lambert, still in a series, you know, a phase of shock, has not turned to run like you would expect at this point. So it's not facing you. You should turn and run. However, she is frozen in fear. She is crying hysterically. And that's when it turns around to face her. You get a glimpse of its tail going 
down and up through behind her, between her legs and up behind her, mm-hmm. then it cuts to Ripley and you hear screaming. Yep. And you hear screaming for a little bit and then that's it. Yep. And now you know Ripley is alone. She realizes she is alone, but she still has to do what she set out to do, which is set the self-destruct sequence, get the hell off the ship and blow this thing apart. Yep. And so at this point she's overcome her, you know, Naivety. She's overcome a childish lack of seriousness. She's overcome a crisis of authority. She's overcome her fight or flight, uh, you know, uh, instincts. And now she is just a fully fledged human being against this, you know, nightmare beast. She gets on the shuttle after a lot of, you know, back mm-hmm. and forth, you know, bringing up the tension to like a, a fever pitch. And they did great with bringing up the tension by having her set the self-destruct sequence, run to the shuttle, realizing that the thing was in the hallway blocking her from the shuttle. So you see the alien standing there kind of looking around and searching. She ducks away, runs all the way back. She has 10 minutes to to get off this this self-destruct sequence, uh, to get off the ship. Uh, She has five minutes to, to abort it. She gets back to the system, attempts to abort it to find out she was not in time. Yep. Now she has five minutes. Yes. So that's where it's just... Now, in this part, too, we have a really long period where she's making a lot of noise, she's doing a lot of things, and the alien's not attacking her. Correct. And we know the alien mm-hmm. is incredibly, incredibly intelligent, mm-hmm. and a perfect predator, as Ash is saying. Right. So it's, it's almost this, oh my gosh, she's running, she's just barely making it, she keeps succeeding. Yes. You know, she has a little bit of failure, but... She hasn't been killed yet. She hasn't been cornered yet. She makes it back to the shuttle. Yep. And she gets out. She passes through, you know, off of the ship. The ship yep, through the hallway explodes, and we're like, "Wow, she's just had a lot of success." Yep. So she's able to get away from the ship in the in the shuttle with Jonesy the cat. By the way, yes, she does have the cat with her. Um, and you see the ship behind her explode in true Death Star fashion, mm-hmm. 1979 CGI explosion, which looks great, by the way. I loved it. Yeah, I that loved looked it. really good. And then she's, uh, sigh of relief, begins, you know, changing, getting ready to go into the hypersleep chamber. Um, she puts Jonesy in there. She's getting ready. She starts to get changed. And she notices, she goes over to grab some stuff off the shelf, and a hand pops out. A very alien hand. And you find out that this thing, with its level of intelligence, stowed away on the shuttle. Figured out that if he stayed on that (laughs) ship, he would be in danger, and the only way off this puppy is on the shuttle. Correct. Don't kill the human yet. Let the human get you to safety and then kill it. (laughs) Correct. So at this point, you know, it doesn't even seem to notice her, necessarily. Um, Yeah, it was almost like it was asleep. Yeah, it was just, it knew it had to be on this thing, and it was going to wait. So she notices it. It doesn't notice her. She backs away into it. And she it. doesn't make, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't let on that she knows it's there. Correct. She does a very good job of keeping quiet. She moves back uh, into a small little room, mm-hmm. notices a spacesuit, and changes. Yes. Now, she gets into the spacesuit. She gets back into her control chair. Uh, it's still kind of rustling around in the, in the wall there. You can kind of see the, the hoses and pipes moving. Uh, she begins to strap herself into the chair. She starts to hit buttons on the console, essentially releasing hot steam. She tries a couple times. The third one actually hits the alien creature. You hear it scream. It panics. It comes out from the wall, at which point she opens the door to the airlock, sucks this thing out. Mm -hmm. It grabs on at the last second, one last bit of tension and suspense, and she hits it with a harpoon for some reason. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. Because it's cool. And launching it out into space. But at this point, it's still not dead. Yep. You see it reach around, grab onto the rear thrusters of this shuttle, and is holding on. So she closes the airlock, she hits the afterburner, and she burns this fucker. Yes. Essentially destroying the alien. What were your thoughts in that final run time? I guess to that me, run sequence. This final run time is was you know, it's a familiar experience to every person who's grown up and left home, which is that you take your problems with you. That makes sense. The problems, the things that you pin on your mother and father, they don't stay there. They go with you. You're on your own. You're independent. 
but your problems have followed you there. You still have to deal with it. You have to deal. You can't run away from it. Leaving is not enough. You have to deal with it. And so that's what, uh, what I saw really in that scene. And and that's the, the element. What, what got me leading up to this before she gets on the shuttle, there's a scene where she's running through the hallway and every three or four steps, she alternates from looking behind her and looking ahead of her. And I thought of that as like, that's almost symbolic of the sense that she's, finally become fully aware she's looking in the past she's looking in the future she knows that she's aware of all the different ways that this thing can kill her all of the different ways of the danger she's aware of the situation at hand and that's what makes her capable of ultimately uh killing the beast she understands it for what it is she sees it for what it is um so that's yeah that's that's essentially my my aspect of the movie is we see the allegory of uh uh Children becoming adults, which is told mythologically in uh, the story of ancient proto-human beings transgressing boundaries that they're not supposed to transgress and coming away with this forbidden knowledge that is what makes them humans as distinct from animals. Uh, So that's what I saw about it, which to me, it goes back again also to like the, the Garden of Eden narrative where Adam and Eve are placed in this garden And the one signifier that we have about them is that they're naked. And then when they achieve the forbidden knowledge, when they've transgressed and they've become wise and their eyes have been opened, the first thing they recognize is their own nakedness. And that's similar to, I feel, what Ripley goes through is that the crew doesn't realize their nakedness. They don't realize their vulnerability. They don't realize the things that are eventually going to kill them. But then once they've come to recognize their weakness, then they can get about the process of destroying the problem at hand and maturing and and coming into their own. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a really good analysis. You know, it's something that I never really thought about. Yeah. Um, I told you I would make this theological. I warned you. Yeah. I know you're going to do that with every film. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, (laughs) but overall you gave it five stars. Oh yeah. Five stars. And even without the allegory stuff, I mean, it still works. That's just what I'm, I'm looking for because that's what I like to study. So, Got it. So you look for the deeper level yeah. of everything. I like looking at the surface when it comes to film. So I liked everything about it. Like the pacing essentially yeah. does it for me. Like if, if something can keep my attention like that and keep me on the edge of my seat, like the entire time we were watching that movie, like neither of us spoke to each other. Oh yeah. We were just like enthralled. I, and I've seen it 40 plus here's times what, and I'm still Here's enthralled. the sign of a good movie in 2019 is that you don't reach for your phone. Correct. Correct. You don't start something else at the same time. Yeah, you're not, you know, bored. And, and it's for a movie from 1979 to hold up. What is that, like 41 years? Yeah. 41 years ago, that movie came out. Holy shit. And it's still amazing. Yeah. And now we've been doing this for about an hour, but really briefly before we go, yeah. what are, in? because you've seen the director's cut as well, correct? Correct, yeah. What are the big differences there? What do we get in the director's cut that we don't get you in the... D- you do get a little bit more exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, you get some deleted scenes. So you get, you know, like I said, you get that confrontation with Lambert and Ripley. Um, I believe you get a little bit more conversations in the opening as far as like the setting and with the company. Okay. Um, backstory. A little bit more backstory. Um, you do get some more uh, tension scenes. Yeah, I'm sure you know, there's for different little, characters. little scenes where the camera holds on a little bit longer. Correct. Or maybe yeah. there's another angle on a scene that we've already seen. Yeah, and if anybody, you know, is is listening to this and they wanted to comment about, you know, the differences or if they disagreed or agreed yeah. with anything that we've said so far, please feel free to. Um, we'd love to talk to you guys. But when it comes to, like, the director's cut, now that was three hours. Three, three hours. hours for the director's cut versus what? An two hour, hours. Pretty much, hour pretty much two minutes? hours on the dot. Yeah, almost two hours on the dot. So there's a lot more to it. Now, I, I do recommend you know you watch that one at some point, too. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can find that extra hour online. I yeah, don't recommend it. Yeah, I imagine it, I will watch it eventually again. This yeah. is definitely a movie that's going to require another uh, another viewing, probably one where I just sort of sit back and just let the whole experience wash over me and not try to analyze it as much. Right. If you're not analyzing it and you're just enjoying it, the best part is like like the little things, like finding out about more about Wayland yutani and like the backstory. And what really hooked me is, you know, wanting to know more about this, this world. Like the space jockey for years was, you know, my focus which was like oh my god what is this thing what were these fucking creatures you Mm -hmm. know why did they have all these eggs on the ship now prometheus attempted to answer that i think in a silly fashion by completely changing the alien to the engineers and using that you know that snout kind of appearance that it had 
um, as like a spacesuit, but you you notice the the scaling differences yeah. as well because this thing was massive. Yeah, it was. It was a massive alien sitting there on the ship when Kane first discovers it. But you know the engineers in Prometheus are roughly the same size as a human, yeah. maybe like a foot taller, if that. And I'm excited to watch the sequels because, as you say, they mm-hmm. they're a little bit more of an action. Sci-fi. Well, I definitely recommend Aliens. The direct sequel to this movie, mm-hmm. which is done by James Cameron, is yeah. one of my favorite movies of all time. And to me, I appreciate that they're not trying to make the same movie a sequel because exactly. I don't think the movie in this, the movie that you know I watched of mm-hmm. Alien, is a little bit more philosophical. It's a little bit more slow paced. It ends when it's supposed to end. Like the story comes to its completion. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in seeing what happens to Ripley, but that story told in that way, I don't think needs to continue. So I, I appreciate Correct. the fact yeah. that they're going to take a change of direction. Completely and we'll get a different, different ex- a different experience, yeah. a different sort of movie. Yeah, it went from a suspenseful, you know, sci-fi horror masterpiece to yeah. a sci-fi action slash a little bit of horror yeah. masterpiece. Because what nothing annoys me more in sequels when they feel the need to recreate things that we've already seen. Like right. the, the new Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. I've already seen the old Star Wars. I, I don't need to see you doing every single thing again. Why not give me new experiences? Right. It's like that reincarnation thing where it's, it's like if it's very Cloud Atlas in a sense where it's <laughs> yeah. just they're, they're which, living the same life me, kind of over like, and yeah, over the, again. I mean, that, it's, it's that thing like, oh, well, history is cyclical, which I actually, I don't agree with at all. No, not even close. I don't think history is yeah. cyclical at all. I think humans are predictable. True. And that if you put humans in certain situations, we'll maybe make the same decisions. But history isn't right. cyclical. Things just keep going. Yes. Things yeah. just keep, it's, we're a tangent. We're not a circle. Oh, of course. And the best part about this, too, is you do get all the major elements of Alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do get a lot of suspense. You get a lot of that, you know, um, suspended thrilling kind of shot, yeah. you know, that, that anticipation, the bomb under the but, table. Correct. But you do get a lot more backstory. So you get a lot more of Wayland Utani, uh, which is the company that originally sent them out. Mm-hmm. You get a lot more backstory on the creatures, which it takes place on the same planet, by the way, as they found that ship. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you get a lot more alien. Yeah. For your buck. You get, there's, there's many. Okay, yeah, I'm so, excited to yeah, see Yeah, so you start to find out, you know, like, a little bit more. Without, without spoon-feeding you, like, okay. you have to watch it, but to me, yeah. like, Aliens is, I liked it more than I liked the first one. Which is, which is really hard to say, because that's the only sequel, I think, well, other than Terminator 2. Empire Strikes Back is always... True, true, true. Yeah, so it's better than the original. You get a couple sequels. This is one of the few that actually stands out. It's one of the few that anybody, I think, could argue is superior in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to touch on that at another time. Sounds good. Yeah. So this was, uh, Tommy's first time watching alien. This is our review and stick with us. We'll have some more for you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.